Hi, good morning and welcome. This is Seek Sustainable Japan. Today we have a very special guest all the way from California, San Diego, California. Thank you so much for joining today, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure. It's awesome to connect with you. I uh, was listening to podcasts. I was listening to、uh, YouTube videos and I kept coming across your incredible videos where you're talking about、uh, the campaigns that Surfrider is doing. But Also, all the politics and the policy and the lobbying that you do, it's really incredible.、Um, how did you get passionate about this? Where did this come from? Can you link it back to a time in your life? It's amazing. I've been asked that question a couple times, and I absolutely can link it back to where and how I was raised. So, I was raised in Colorado. Um, right by the mountains, and it was gorgeous. And my family spent tons of time outside. We were camping, rock climbing, kayaking, you name it. And so I had this great appreciation for nature at a very young age. And then I have a very particular memory of driving up to Boulder with my mom and seeing litter on the, the freeway or highway around us and, and telling her very, very young. It doesn't match, meaning like it doesn't match your clothes, you know, the word match. And that just has stuck with me ever since. So I think being inculcated with nature had just set me on this course.、Um, and then both my parents were kind of activists, they were professors, they were really involved in their community. So I kind of had the best of both worlds from my parents.、Um, really encouraging and just very active people. That's awesome. I think, I think that is so important, right? I, how, how you were raised, kind of to think about things for yourself, to ask questions.、Uh, definitely, a lot of people who are raised by educators have become activists. Isn't that interesting? It is. It really is. I mean, that's education and activism are how we change the world, right? And everybody is kind of, I think, seeing that more days、uh, than, than before. Yeah. Uh, now, Surfrider started in California, Malibu, I believe, right? This、uh, famous Malibu Beach、uh, in 1984.、Uh, you are credited on the Surfrider Foundation page, on your profile page,、uh, with spearheading the Save the Trestles campaign. And I love, I was watching the video today, and I love your quote about the reason you think it was so successful was. The diversity of people that were so actively involved. I love your quote about even the old ladies who are knitting. They don't care about surfing, but they're part of this campaign to protect the area. Tell us a little bit about that campaign. It sounds great. Wow, that's so cool. It, I, it's funny, I did have three older women that would come to all the public hearings and knit, they would just sit there and knit.、Um, It, it was, it's, it, we finally just ended the campaign. It was literally 20 years in the making. And the location of where they were proposing this toll road. So it was a 16 mile, six lane toll road. So you, it's a private entity. So you have to pay to get on it. And they wanted to shove it through. And people think I'm like exaggerating. And then you see the map and you're like, oh, they were literally going to put it through like the entire park, just like bifurcate the entire park. The solution was kind of like the match. Um, and so it was, yeah, the, this is some of the videos. The, these are, it's so cool that you have this in the background playing because this is what we did. We, you know, we had people go and protest、um, outside of the Capitol. We set up a press conference. We had people down at the trailhead educating everyone about what the impacts were. And I mean, honestly, Joy, the impacts were 
really, really intense. As you mentioned, there's there's so many resources there. Um, this area is location to the village of Panhe, which is the Ashiman tribe that's there. And they have literally sacred sites where, where their family has used for millennia to conduct, you know, ceremonies and, and all these wonderful things that come to it. The other thing is, you know, it's home to 12 endangered species. And I could go on, here you go, look, you can kind of see where the, the map is. Um, and because Southern California is so overdeveloped, we have this random swath of land that has not been developed because we have a military base. And so California, the state, rents the park from the federal government. And so essentially, we knew we had to protect the species that were there because they don't exist in other parts of Southern California. Because again, it's about 70 miles of just open space that does not exist. <laughs> and at the same time, we, we knew we had cultural sites, environmental sites, and then trestles. The bottom of this watershed is where trestles is, the surf spot. And as you saw today, they're doing the, the, the global competition at trestles right now for surfing. So the, the amount of resources were so unavoidable that we felt that there was no way we could sit on the sidelines. And so we started this campaign really in, in 2000. Oh my gosh, really in 2000, okay, it was a, one of the very first hearings. Um, and every hearing we had thereafter just grew and grew and grew because it was such an egregious project that it infuriated people. We had people come from Japan, ironically, because there's so many, as you know, we'll, we get to, we'll get to the Japanese surf culture in a second here. It's it's tremendous. But yeah, we had people come from Australia, uh, drive all the way, like, rent buses to come across the country to these meetings because it's such obviously a special place. I could go on forever about it, but it really truly is unique. And it was a huge battle. I mean, I didn't think it would last this long. And we finally put a nail in the coffin. There's, we passed a piece of legislation that forbids any type of road through that park. We also have multiple lawsuits that we filed and settled to ensure that they can't come back again. So we kind of did the litigious uh, legislation and grassroots activism that uh, it really shut the whole thing down. And it was probably one of the highlights of my life, I guess. Kind of sounds so cheesy. It's so, no, it's so important. And it's, it's so, it's so vital, I think, to, to be passionate about what you do. And uh, you have, you have worked with Surfrider for a long time. And we need people not only out there cleaning the beaches and doing petitions, we need people who understand the legal part and the politics part, because without the policy, without the legal protections, uh, we're going to lose this fight, right? Exactly, exactly. Also, I noticed that our glasses are kind of matching. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> I love it. I was searching so long for wooden frame. I didn't See, want plastic I, okay, frame. Now I'm sidetracking. Sorry. I know we're live too, but those are amazing. You'll have to send me where you got them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really great Etsy shop. Uh, craftsperson who was in the Ukraine, actually, and he's in um, exile now. Um, okay. But yeah, OK Thai. I highly recommend him. He's working uh, in wow. another country now. But yeah, lovely. Um, let's talk a little bit, just backtrack about the main things that Surfrider does. Um, so you're involved in kind of lobbying and policy making and analysis of uh, how states in America are doing in terms of policy and implementation. 
I think that is so key in terms of uh, looking forward, not just our policies being making, but are they being carried out, right? Exactly, exactly. And that is really, truly, you know, it's funny, we, we, us advocates kind of don't like being called lobbyists, but at the end of the day, that's what we are. You know, it, we are just not for a big, large corporation. We're, we're there presenting the other side of what some opponents might be. And it is fundamentally the most important really thing we can do to protect our planet is to get involved with laws and policy. So this picture right there is um, we have a, an annual lobby day where we go to the Capitol and we visit um, 160 different congressional offices. We had 150 activists come with us representing BIPOC communities, youth, surf professional surfers, academia. And then this year, we were lucky enough to meet with the Biden administration. And that was, I think, the second highlight of my life. You know, we surfers have a different perspective because we're in the water. And I think a lot of, uh, by the way, I'm not really a surfer, but um, I'm just the token dork. Um, but it has this connection to the ocean that that a lot of people can't understand. And it, just even being a beachgoer, just being at the beach on a regular basis just has this spiritual connection. Again, pardon the, the, the pun of being cheesy, but um, elected officials are really into that. They think that surfers are just going to show up and be like Spicoli, and then we all string these words together, and they really listen to us. And it's shocking every single time it happens because... You know, and, and we had someone who was 20 with us that lobbied the Biden administration, and it was Gina McCarthy. So there's two kind of climate czars underneath the Biden administration, John Kerry. Um, he's the international czar. And then Gina McCarthy, she's the, the national czar for climate. And so she's in, you know, the cabinet with him. And we were just expecting to meet with her. And then she brought like 10, 10 people with her at the end of the day. And it, I mean, some of my heroes that helped form laws and policies, like the bedrock laws and policies decades ago were on this call to just hear about what is going on with our ocean and climate change. And it, you know, that's a whole nother subject we can get into, but to answer your question about lobbying, um, it's imperative. And when you have these youth and you have people who are authentic coming and showing up, we had someone from REI, which is the, um, sports gear manufacturer. Um, we had people from all over different industries representing the economic forces of it. And, to, to bring that emotional and economic impact. Um, when we left the Biden administration's meeting, they said, can you please come back every week until climate change is solved? So it was very uplifting for this, especially this younger woman who came with us who you know, just turned 20, because um, it, it was authentic. And I think that's the point I'm trying to make here is lobbying is only successful if it's authentic and thoughtful. Yeah. Well, you you are doing such a great job in terms of um, putting the pressure on, but also getting awareness out. And I, I thought one of the ways that you're doing that so effectively, we're going to tie this back to Japan issues in a minute. Yes, but yes, yes. I, I love I love what you're what you're doing with kind of like a report card for a state by state and looking how uh, policies are being made. Implementation is being made. And then this was the report card for 2021 in the U.S. And I loved hearing you talk about Georgia and how such a big change in a small state that you wouldn't expect. But some states, um, it's very diverse in how they're handling these issues. But it, it must be really exciting 
to see how some states are really taking it seriously. Is that because they're more affected by erosion and uh, storms and climate change is having a very obvious big effect right now for them? That's a great question. I think you pretty much nailed it on the head. Um, even though those, some of those states, so for instance, both North Carolina and Georgia, they actually passed legislation about 10 years ago that banned the words climate change in any type of legislative activity. I know, just set for that for a second. Yeah, Google it. It's amazing. Um, literally, they did. So it was in statute that you can't talk about climate change. And then to your point, all of these hurricanes, I mean, the back-to-back -back hurricanes, the other thing that, that those states are experiencing, which we're not necessarily on the West Coast, is sunny day flooding. So they're seeing, you know, literally storm drains full of ocean water, marine life coming up through storm drains. You saw what happened in Florida where, you know, that the unfortunately that condo collapsed, but the whole bottom basement was full of salt water. And so it's just seeping up. The East Coast is subsiding a little bit. So that's why they have more sea level rise problems than we do. And it's a more of a shallow outer continental shelf compared to the West Coast. So just by geologic makeup and the climate change itself, they are definitely bearing the brunt. And it's very exciting to see their change. So for instance, we monitor on how they do development. Are they building in harm's way? Do they have good development standards, zoning, et cetera. How do they manage their beaches with like beach fill? Like sometimes, you know, they'll dump a lot of beach on or sand on the beach and it might not be clean or they didn't look. Um, we kind of grade them on how they deal with coastal armoring, which is you can kind of see um, in one of the videos here too, it, it shows how when you put up a seawall, it starves all of the natural sediment flow to our beaches and actually starves our beaches. And then finally we grade them on, um, how they plan for sea level rise. So those are the four categories. And Georgia, since you specifically mentioned them, um, they greatly changed over the course of several years. And one of the things they did is they updated their setbacks for development. So what they had had before was a, a line of trees that would make the demarcation. Now that is so arbitrary. And that is like, I swear back from like <laughs> Civil War days, I don't know. But you know, in California, we have like, you have to set your buildings back from the coast based on the following things. Previous erosion, new erosion, potential 100-year floods, and sea level rise. So, you know, just having a line of trees is a very smart urban planning. Um, so they updated that. They Then they updated all of their sea level rise planning. And they have been the state that has improved the most. Um, they went from an F to a C. I think it's a C minus. But um, it was very fun to watch that process. What these states do is they apply for monies to the federal government and the federal government will give them underneath the Coastal Zone Management Act, my favorite law, um, monies for them to do what they want with their coastal management programs. And so they, they do a form that they have to give to the federal government. And they mention our there's a few states that mention this report that our report. So at first I thought. It was a presumptuous to think that this little report from, you know, this tiny part of the world is actually going to change regulatory agencies like at the high level. And to see that it is, is truly rewarding because it means we're helping. We really are. And that's all we can do is just be proactive with climate change. So we're hoping that's what this report really does. Yeah. 
Well, that's that's awesome. And it's so great to see that that progress and to people in reports actually citing you guys as one of the reasons that probably they got data as well, because that's one of the things that you guys are very active in doing is actually on the ground at the beaches in the water collecting data as well, right? Absolutely. So we have five different initiatives that we run, and I run our Coast and Climate Initiative. And then we have our Clean Water Initiative, which, as you just mentioned, that's where individuals will go out and test the water to see if it's good to swim in. Um, and it's been very effective, very active. We have, I can't even remember at the top of my head how many thousands of samples we've had in the past couple years, just alone in the past couple years. And we have, we engage high school students and college students to set up labs as well so that they can go out and get credit, take their school, go on a field trip, test for water. We also have our plastic pollution initiative, which as we all know is, is a very ginormous problem, which is also connected to climate, which we'll talk about in a second. And then we have ocean protection, which is to really establish marine protected areas and fight offshore oil drilling. That's the main premise of that initiative that we have. And then finally, we have beach access to ensure equitable access to our coast so that there's no private interests impeding public access. And now with climate change, we're starting to see our access is being wiped out left and right where we're not able to access our beaches. In fact, I was did a little show with um, the it's this week with George Stephanopoulos and Good Morning America came out. We went to Hawaii and I was walking up to get to the place that we were being interviewed. And there was no there was no sand for me. And I had to climb up the seawall and I a wave came and almost pulled me into the ocean. And, and there you go. Like the, the access is being ripped out. And I almost went on national TV wet because I almost got pulled out into the ocean. So. Those things I'm seeing firsthand, our members are seeing firsthand. And again, everything really does connect to climate, all of those initiatives. Um, and so we've really elevated our climate change program as the priority for our organization. And it's the number one goal for our recent strategic plan. Yeah, let's talk about disappearing coastlines and access to beaches a little bit, because I just recently went home. I grew up in Hawaii, always a big love of the ocean and the beaches. I've lived in Japan for a long time, and I hadn't been back home for a little while. And when I went back home this time, I work in tourism and uh, talking about how do you balance the needs of locals and the local environment with tourists. And I think Hawaii has so many wonderful examples of how they do that well. Uh, one of the things that I have always appreciated is that public access to any beach or natural area in Hawaii. Uh, you can't make a private beach. Uh, you have to have that public access. But exactly like you said, you are starting to see the beaches disappear uh, because of armoring and uh, putting concrete on the coastline, which actually makes the beaches disappear faster. Uh, which is counterintuitive. Counterintuitive. Um, but this is a huge problem around Japan. Japan has only like one or two beaches left, which are natural. This yeah. has been since the 1950s. Just putting concrete barriers everywhere has been the status quo. That's the way we're going to fix it. That's the way we're going to protect the coastline. And the thinking now we know that's not true, but it's really hard to stop this engine from moving forward in the way they've always done, right? 
that's oh gosh, I, I'm like, do you need a job? <laughs> um, that's exactly it. No, we're in this predicament with climate change, not just because of climate change. We're in this predicament because of outdated thinking, as you said. For decades, we have built haphazardly along the coast. And you're right. Japan is pretty bad in terms of how much it's armored. I and mean, we had a, a conference there with the Surfrider Foundation, all of our affiliates, exactly. And you all have a little bit of, that's kind of, that's more like rip-rap as we call it, is just like plunking down um, rocks or, you know, concrete like that. Uh, and when we had the conference there, you know, we went took a tour to go look at beaches and go surfing. And of course, you know, we were all noticing how much armoring was there. And it just is a false sense of security because it doesn't work. And as we've seen, it, it might protect a road for a little bit, but again, it's trapping all of the sediment behind the seawall. So the sand never gets to the beach and the beach will just be completely gone. You can see homes where there's a seawall and not a seawall and there's beach in front of the home that doesn't have a seawall and you can imagine what's in front of the seawall. So um, I think it's changing though. I feel this positive energy coming with progressive proactive planning because climate change is now in our face like when i started working on climate change you know 10 years ago it wasn't very um as empirical right it wasn't in our face and now we can't avoid it i mean look at what happened in pakistan this week it's just heartbreaking millions of people do not have a home right now thousands of people have passed away. I mean, so we're starting to see the uptick in this and it's changing to your effect of what we were talking about with Georgia. I think it's slowly incrementally changing our outdated thinking of development standards and then being proactive. So we're like not waiting for a huge collapse of a home, which happened in the North shore of, of your home state in Hawaii. A home fell directly into the ocean this past spring. And so we want to get ahead of that, right? We want to help communities avoid that. Yeah. I Let's talk about development standards a little bit, because I, I saw that uh, firsthand. Very, you know, million dollar homes right there on the coast, no protection. So you can see why they wanted that concrete barrier, because it gives the illusion of protection. Um, but the whole idea, and I heard you mention this in your other talks, how Zillow, the real estate finder is actually saying, if you buy, you're not going to be able to sell in five years because it's a danger to be buying something right here on the coast. And uh, something we we have in Japan, when you buy a house, we bought an old house. Uh, it's not on the coast, but it is near a landslide zone. And they have all this data that they tell you when you buy a house in Japan, um, how what's your danger status in terms of natural disasters. And I was really impressed by that, you know, and then you're buying aware. And I would assume they have a similar thing on the coast. Um, but this changes because this is like the business economic side, which is putting pressure on uh, development standards, right? It, it, again, you're just nailing everything. Thank you for such great research because everything you're mentioning is so important and you're able to distill it down. Um, yeah, so what you just brought up for Hawaii. So in America, we have disclosures for sure. So for instance, I just bought a house in a fire prone area. And so I had to go through every fire map underneath my, you know, my real estate disclosure clause. Um, but there, there's no state except for Hawaii 
in the in America anyway, where you are required to disclose sea level rise exposure. So what the state did, which is absolutely fascinating, and it's funny because California is always like the one who's like ahead of the curve. And this goes to show you that actually we're behind Hawaii on this. And we really are trying to work on passing similar legislation where you have to disclose you're in a sea level rise zone during a, a real estate transaction. And the way that Hawaii did that is the state did a vulnerability assessment to see if this much emissions goes on, how much you know sea level rise will we see? And so they kind of took 3.4 feet um, of what that would sea level rise will look like. And then they do an overlay around communities to see what homes are in that overlay. And if your home is in that overlay, you have to legally say, my home is in a sea level rise prone area. And again, it's the only state that has that. There, they, if you live in a flood zone, they tell you, but it's not specific to sea level rise. And this is game changing. And to your point about pressure, development, development standards, when we were fighting this in Hawaii, you know, the real estate industry was opposed to it the first year. They, they killed it. I mean, I, I'm not gonna lie, they killed it. Um, and talk about lobbyists, right? So we're on one side lobbying for, you know, good things. And unfortunately, um, they, they came out strongly against it. But to our point at the beginning of this, this chat, I think that they're getting this consciousness because I feel that they know that there's culpability in their industry to not, there's an ethical imperative here to inform people in their industry what is harmful and instead of running from it like they have in the past. So I, again, feel very positive about these changes that are coming up that we're, we are seeing industries that we've typically butted heads against going, wow, we're going to do this same thing with the insurance industry. And we're part of a coalition where it's primarily there's like four environmental organizations, Surfrider, Natural Resources Defense Council, World Wife, Wildlife Federation, and then a bunch of tax paying insurance advocate groups, because at the end of the day, it costs us all money to keep building in harm's way. That's so true. And um, a lot of it, I think, is being spurred on faster because of economic reasons. Um, you have both parties in the U.S. saying, oh, we're only, you know, for a long time, we have to think about the businesses. Well, this is so obvious that it's affecting our economy and it is so closely related to business. You cannot ignore it. But when one party is still ignoring it. Now, you've you've had a lot of success, actually, with um, big regulations in America like the Ocean-Based Climate Solutions Act. I heard you talking about this. This is very exciting. This is very exciting. Um, wow, you're so great. Yeah, so there's a, a lot of legislation that, that I watch at the federal level, and that's my favorite thing to do for my job is to kind of stock legislation. And this bill is particularly exciting because it acknowledges uh, the equity issue to ensure that we have our frontline communities, our tribal communities, our BIPOC communities, and economically disadvantaged communities on our coastlines being at the forefront of receiving financial support from this bill. And so it would help relocate communities who really need to get out of harm's way. We're already seeing tribes move in Alaska 
and Louisiana, literally entire communities are having to be moved out of harm's way. So this would prioritize that for, for those kind of disadvantaged communities. And again, as I talked about, banning offshore oil drilling is a really important thing for Surfrider. We've been working on it for 40 years. You know, it, it kind of flies in the face of, of, of climate goals when you're continuing to do new offshore oil drilling. And so this would put a ban on it. And then blue carbon, which is fascinating, which is things like seagrass, mangroves, marshes, those type of ecosystems actually pull carbon from the air and trap it inside of their roots and soil beneath them. And they can take out four times as much carbon from the air as regular trees on land. So it's again, restoring and repairing these areas to pull carbon from the air. And really there's a bunch of other things in there like ocean acidification. And we're starting to see these harmful algae blooms, which we have right now in San Francisco where there's thousands of fish dying every day. Um, and so it's a really great bill. And then as you know, we just passed and Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act. It's not perfect. Um, but it makes about a $370 billion investment into coastal restoration and to help communities plan for sea level rise. So we do have some good things going for us. We just need to get this bill um, out of the, the House is where it is, pass the House into the Senate and have it signed. It's a bigger feat than than how I just simply explained it. But um, there's a lot of good pieces of legislation that are coming out because of this administration uh, that we're very pleased about and that some, um, you know, because we're not, we're bipartisan, we, we, you know, we're not here to chastise or shake our fingers at any party, um, but we're just really happy that the senators came around to do, again, this is a moral imperative at this point. This is all ethics and morals when we have so much empirical evidence of climate change, uh, it becomes, it shifts to a, a morality issue. Yeah. And when you when you have that economic tie too, and businesses are seeing how, especially tourism, is like a no brainer, right? Like it's really impacting um, plastic pollution and sea tides rising and our beaches disappearing. You know, tourism is a huge industry for Hawaii, for Japan, for California, a lot of places along the coast around the world, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, roughly. In just American, I think the statistic is pretty similar globally, but roughly 40% of the population lives within a coastal zone. I mean, that's a staggering number. So it is that economic factor. It is the tourist factor. I mean, one of the beaches that I've been going to forever, you know, we're starting to see south swells come in, which is a normal process of how the ocean works with the ocean currents. And, you know, we have them in the summer, they come up. Um, but the past five years, these, I mean, joy, these, these swells are wiping out literally entire swaths of beach. Um, there was a place that used to have a basketball court on the beach. It took the entire basketball course into the ocean. Um, there used to be like concession stands, same thing. So it is impacting tourism and all of our economic bottom lines for these coastal communities where almost half of Americans live. And then you've got uh, people in policy who don't don't really understand the the recent science who say, okay, let's just put big concrete walls up. You know, that's the knee jerk reaction. Um, so it's so great that you guys have have the accurate accurate science and and can talk to policymakers and say, actually, that's not the best way. Let's think about more natural methods uh, to stop erosion. 
Um, we mentioned the, the tetrapods. I think another uh, connection between Japan and America, which I saw firsthand on the beaches when I was there, uh, we have a lot of plastics in the fishing industry in Japan. Um, in my area of Hiroshima, it's really big oyster industry. And I saw those plastic tubes on the top left of the screen, which I know are separators for the oyster industry for the floating oyster beds, which we have by the tens of thousands in my nearby seas. And I've seen the oyster industry people putting it in and taking it out and many falling away. We pick them up by the thousands every month when we do beach cleanups. And I found it on the beaches in Hawaii. And that, to me, it was like, ugh, you know, because I'm where the tap is that we need to turn it off. Everybody who cleans beaches in this area knows it's a problem in this area. But how do you, and, and we're connected, right? You're in California, I'm in Hiroshima. We're connected by the seas. These are our common oceans, our common problems. So every fight that you guys are fighting is helping us and every problem that we're creating and vice versa is hurting you guys so it you know it seems strange to talk to you in america and how does that relate to japan uh but the ocean it's all connected right it, it affects everyone the thing about plastics which you know i don't run that um initiative so you know my colleague was i, I hopefully don't um let her down but um you know, the plastic pollution, again, nobody knew what was happening. So when I was in Hawaii in 1999, um, we were on the big island and we saw plastic everywhere. And at that point, nobody understood that we had the five gyres that was trapping. And I'll get into that in a second. And I just thought it was people taking boats off shore and just dumping plastic. We didn't realize that the majority of plastic is coming from land. It's being sucked out into our oceans through storm drains, through direct connections. As it gets into the ocean, it gets pulled into what's called a gyre. And there's five of them in our ocean around the world. And it acts kind of like, you know, uh, when you see a toilet flush, how it just kind of circulates. And so what's happening is all the plastics being trapped in those gyres and then they're being released in bands. And unfortunately, Hawaii and and Japan, you guys really get the brunt and parts of Alaska as well, really get the brunt of these gyres kind of d dumping the plastic that they've been accumulating. And so Hawaii is in the, the path of that. And that's why it's so bad in Hawaii and it's absolutely frightening. But the other thing I think is really interesting about the plastic pollution is that it's greatly related to climate change just simply for greenhouse gas emissions. Um, you know, when they're when they're doing the drilling to get fossil fuels to make plastic, where there's also methane leaks that are coming out. So in order to make plastic, you're using all these really resource intensive mechanisms. And then you get to when you're then once you've got the plastic, then you're refining it and making it into. And those admissions are in 2015 alone. There was uh, the emissions were equal to 45 million vehicles driving for one year. That was just one year of admissions from the plastic industry. And then of course, the, the, the end of the life cycle is ridiculous because what's happening, which to me is I think is the most frightening part of this, of the, the, the life cycle of it, is that there are a lot of folks are burning the, the plastic now. So America used to ship ours over to China and China stopped accepting our recycling. They actually shipped 
back of a boat full of plastic. You should watch um, Trevor Noah from The Daily Show. He does a great little blurb on it. And one of our, our employees got on the show to talk about it. Um, and so because there's no room anymore in landfills, we're burning it, which again, massive greenhouse gas inducing problems. And then when it goes into a landfill, as you know, landfills produce methane and methane is honestly the deadliest of greenhouse gases. So it's just this vicious cycle. Um, and, you know, it's really, it's really quite frightening the amount, the last statistic I'll say with plastics is, is that we, we would say that by 2050, um, it would be like running 615 new coal power plants, just the emissions that come from the plastic industry. I mean, it's just, it's just it's staggering. It is staggering and overwhelming. And, you know, uh, even in Hawaii, uh, Japan burns most of its plastic. Uh, very little is actually recycled into anything else. And the, But the image is everything's being reused. So I can use this pet bottle because it's going to be reused into something else. It's like less than 20% is actually recycled. Most of it is just burnt. And you can't use that ash because it's toxic. So it has to go in landfill. And then the only information you hear about incineration is, oh, but it's creating energy. Um, mm, let's think about all the data and all the things along the process. That's not enough energy. We need to rethink our infrastructure. And I think infrastructure and regulation, that's kind of your wheelhouse, right? Um, yes. that's, where, that's where you focus and that's where you live. Um, when I talked to Ian Urbina, who did the Ocean uh, Outlaw Ocean book and the organization, um, he, I was talking to him and I was like, in your book, you talk about everything, all the problems happening on the ocean that nobody is looking at. But it's overwhelming. It's huge. How do you move forward in your organization? And I want to ask you the same question, Stephanie. Everything is overwhelming and huge. How do you choose what to focus on to move forward? That's a really important question because if if we don't act strategically, then we burn ourselves out. And that's the world that we're in. I mean, you're in sustainability too. You know, it there's this thing called climate grief, right? Like literally college kids actually are putting that when they talk to therapists about they have, you know, climate grief. And so it can be overwhelming. And so being strategic and focusing on what we're good at is what we decided to do. So, you know, there's other organizations like Sierra Club and Greenpeace that can focus on the admissions. Now we do, we talk like, I just talked about admissions for a very long time. We care about them, but we're not really a clean air organization. We're an ocean organization. So we focus on climate change adaptation helping those local communities adapt to sea level rise, protecting all the blue carbon ecosystems we have there. And you touched on it earlier is using nature-based solutions instead of our typical armoring. And you know what, before climate change was so ravaging, we were already doing that, right? We were advocating for don't build so close to the coast, don't armor, you know? And so we've all been doing it very well for four decades. Now we just do it through the lens of climate change adaptation. So we had to be really focused on that. And, and believe me, we get we get some slack. I mean, people, now that we're growing hugely as an organization, I mean, we've just exploded in the past um, seven years. We're very much international now, like we're all over the place. And, you know, we get slack from people like, why aren't you talking about meats? Why aren't you, you know, telling everybody to just become vegans? And why aren't you talking about like coal power plants? And, and we're saying, because we have to focus because we will burn ourselves out and we will get nothing done. 
it's kind of like the jack of all trades or the Julia of all trades, um, just running around doing a bunch of stuff and never feeling like you're completing anything. So, and then we just did a strategic plan where we really did like a very deep dive into how we're going to do that. We identified strategies and we were very meticulous. Um, we had consultants help us do it for that reason so that we are strategically focused. That's so important. Um, one of the things I heard you talking about is the 30 by 30. Um, yeah. So the 30% uh, reductions, well, you, t you tell us about it. You're the expert. Yeah, well, this one's, I'm so glad you put that up because this is this is the the two statistics I think are super important. And I say it to everyone when I give presentations, if you don't leave with anything from this podcast, leave with these two statistics. And um, the ocean has absorbed 90% of the heat that's been trapped in our atmosphere because of global warming. And it's, it's the equivalent of like four Hiroshima bombs going off every hour, the intense energy that's within our ocean. And of course, it's also pulling carbon and sequestering it, not in a good way, in a bad way, in our oceans. And so our ocean chemistry is changing. We're starting to see ocean acidification, more coral bleaching, because the ocean is too hot and it's acidic now. And so in order to have the ocean bounce back, what we need to do is establish where we protect 30% of our waters and land so that we can ensure that if you have an ecosystem where you can't fish, do offshore oil drilling, um, do other things within that protected area. The, the areas grow back. There's so much data to show when you have a marine protected area, um, the kelp grows, the, the flora, the fauna, the biomass just in general. And then of course the amount of species that are there explodes. And so when you have these really high functioning coastal and ocean ecosystems, they're able to withstand, you know, sea level rise a little bit more, or maybe a hurricane a little bit better or a tsunami for you all. Um, and so that's why if we can protect 30% of land and 30% of our waters, it, it gives grace to the planet to be able to respond to the climate crisis that we're in right now. And again, there, it, we've had some fantastic results. We've worked on marine protected areas all over the country. And in California, we helped establish them. Here you go. Exactly. And it covers 16%. We need to increase that to obviously 30%. So those little dots you see on the side there um, are all different marine protected areas from Canada down to Mexico. Um, we have them in Oregon and Washington as well. So it's it's a really great um, way to, again, have those ecosystems absorb some of the impacts and give nature a little bit of grace. Yeah, it's awesome to see. And uh, these marine protected areas. I know uh, you were talking about the different stakeholders and that it's very difficult uh, to get different stakeholders to all agree, of course, because everybody's got different priorities. They're very focused on what they need individually. Um, how do you get people to agree? That's another uh, strategy that you guys have to use a lot, right? <laughs> I have a little tongue in cheek right now because you can tell I've spent many sleepless nights doing this. And I think that's the other thing is like you were basically lobbyists and negotiators at the end of the day, like to negotiate these terms, but then to do it again in a way that is in in is equitable to everyone, you know, especially in America. I think we've overlooked the, the concept of equity, unfortunately, um, way more than we should have. And so it's kind of coming around to nip us a little bit. And so we're, we're really having to focus on 
improving, you know, what that looks like. Um, but yeah, so the negotiations to set up a marine protected area is the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. I had fishers um, screaming at me, calling my house, yelling at me, stalking me outside of, you know, public hearings. And what Surfrider did is we uniquely, we because we have a lot of fishers that are in our organization, we're water women and men. I mean, that's literally the makeup of our organization. So compared to someone like, you know, Sierra Club that doesn't have a lot of fishermen, they can be more, you know, in their own little isolation where we couldn't do that. So to be honest with you, you know, what really worked is I can shoot pool really well and I can drink beer pretty good too. And I would meet these, I'm not joking you. I would meet these fishermen at, at bars and play pool with them and say, where do you not want a marine protected area? And I'll see if I can go back to the state and to the other environmentalists and say, can we carve out this section for fishing? And so we took what some would call the middle ground and it, it was the hardest thing to do. Um, where some of the more radical either fishermen or, you know, environmentalists, um, they just really were in a, a completely different spot than we were. But we got some of the best marine protected areas established. And again, not to pat Surfrider too much on the back here, but, you know, we've received feedback that if you guys hadn't had jumped in here and met with the fishers, this whole process would have been so much more tremendously painful. And I was like, well, easy for you to say. <laughs> <laughs> you were not at all the bars shooting pool. Um, but then here's the deal. Here's the beautiful silver lining of everything here. A lot of those fishers I became friends with because when you authentically meet with someone, they want to continue to be friends with you and work with you. And so it went from me bawling and crying and hiding in my car to these guys becoming like my brothers. We did an underwater cleanup with them. They wanted to, to do that. They said, hey, we want to help Surfrider. You helped us. And so they were in their scuba gear, diving down. Um, so it did come full circle, but with a lot of hard work. Yeah. And tact. But, but it's that, you know, being side by side with people that you might disagree with, but trying to see what their issues are, what their priorities are, and and trying to explain to them in a way that they see your priorities are actually more aligned than they thought. That you're actually watching out for them as well, right? Like it's not just you're trying to take something away, you're trying to help them be more resilient in the future as well, right? Exactly, and that was really, thank God we have the data from previous marine protected areas because it's, and it's called spillover. Um, which is th that ecosystem that's been protected where no one can fish and do harm's way. The um, fish get so populated in that area, they leave that ecosystem and they spill over. And so there's been an increase in fishing outside of marine protected areas because that ecosystem is so lavishing. They're they're leaving and going to other places and then able to, to be fished. So it, it really is. And I think, honestly, Joe, I don't want to um, undervalue this because the the world we live in with politics now, I mean, especially in America, it's a little bit different. Um, we need to be sitting side by side with people and there's just not enough. But And there's two reasons I think it happens. I think it's really hard to do that. It's very challenging. It's much easier to go your own way and not have to do that. So I think there might be a little bit of laziness um, in terms of, of why that's happening. And I, honestly, I think people don't think that they can make a change. And then when I've, I've had so many activists and advocates come to me over the years and, and, you know, again, for the trestles toll road, my, my older ladies out there, you know, knitting, they were making stuff and it was like, they're like, they felt like they could make a change. And so I just want to leave with everyone, um, 
you can make a change. And it is very simple. I mean, it's as simple as, again, you know what, not buying single use plastic because it comes from uh, fossil fuels, which are contributing to climate change. Just right there, you've done something good, both for plastic pollution and the climate. So little bits, little pieces, and then getting involved with your local community. You talked about doing beach cleanups. Um, you know, our Japan Surfrider does beach cleanups all of the time. They're out there. Um, and again, it gives that people just that sense of worth and movement and activity that is part of the human condition, you know, that we really need to have. Um, so I can't, you know, overstate to your listeners how, how cool a Surfrider Japan is. Um, and I want, I want to really briefly before we go talk about, you know, the surf culture. And I was so surprised to see the obsession with surfing in Japan. It is amazing. And it's amazing to see a lot of Japanese surfers come to trestles. That is like their Mecca. So I've been down there a bunch and um, they just, it's amazing to see that those two cultures are one and the same. And, you know, the surf culture is the surf culture. It's same as it is in Japan as it is in California. Uh, so I thought that was a really cool connection to see it. I, I surprised. I was like, God, this is almost like Hawaii vibe, right? In Japan with the love of surfing. Uh, definitely. Uh, we, we know a lot of surfers uh, in our area who drive to the, the nearby coast. And uh, it is. It's very similar in Hawaii. And that love of the ocean, which then drives a passion to be more responsible in your life, but also to talk about it with your community and try to improve things um, in the oceans. So the, the surfers, yeah, are really, there's so many surf or environmental organizations around the world now. Uh, there it's really is amazing. It used to just really be Surfrider, but now we have Surf Aid, which goes to different countries that are underdeveloped and helps individuals there. There's Save the Waves Coalition. Um, there are Surfers Against Sewage in England. Um, and so there is this great growth for it because, you know, it is it is a sport, you know, I'm not going to gloss over it, that will be very impacted by climate change. Just three feet of sea level rise, which some people predict could happen by 2050. Um, California is using that as a measure, three feet by 2050, um, will wipe out the majority of star spots around the world. And we've been working with some academics to do deeper research on what this looks like for surfing itself. But the pre preliminary research is is pretty shocking in terms of it's, it's upwards of like 80 percent of surf breaks in California with just three feet of sea level rise will go away. Um, so, again, it goes back to tourism, economics um, and the need to get ahead. You know, it's all those things are interlinked, as you know. I mean. Yeah. No, no, so important. Uh, one thing I noticed about Surf Raider Japan, I'd love to get a contact from you, someone I could talk um, more specifically about what they're doing in Japan. Um, but one thing that I did notice they are doing is they're taking uh, water samples all over the coast lines of Japan and testing for uh, oxygen, chemical oxygen demand and uh, sewage indications in E. coli and other tests. Um, is that standard like in the work that you guys are doing in California and other areas as well? Yeah, it's very standard. Um, in fact, I, I feel remiss not mentioning that Japan does the water testing. Yeah, we have um, water testing all over the world now. We just, our most recent um, um, chapters in Senegal, Africa, 
So, you know, that's one of the easiest programs to get involved besides beach cleanups. Um, because again, it's that tangible feeling of helping. And unfortunately, a lot of, and especially in America, I'm not quite sure about Japan, but a lot of our state and federal agencies don't have a lot of funds to do the testing itself. And so it really is left up to individual communities, either a municipality or us, people like you and I, who are going to go out there and pick up the plastic and test the water. So, and it's, it's incredible, not only just for, you know, exploration, especially because the kids really love it and it's got the science and they really connect the science and it's just such a great educational form, but it's a hundred percent useful, right? Like, you know, if you can swim there or not, or go surfing there or not. And so it's that kind of real time. Um, instead of waiting, you know, for results or whatnot. So it's wonderful that Japan is doing it um, at a deep level as well. Yeah. So having that data from uh, the science that you're getting from from volunteers who are taking samples and then at the cleanups as well, counting the types of waste that you have and having that data as your database, which is then used in lobbying, right? Oh my gosh, you're connecting all the dots for me. I'm like, please come work with Surfrider. That's exactly it. And you know what? Sometimes our volunteers are like, you really want me to count all the cigarette butts? And we're like, we really want you to count all the cigarette butts because it's the most littered item in the world. And we want to show the numbers for it. And so, yes, we call them citizen scientists, right? That's what they are. And there's a, if Google it, I mean, it's a huge burgeoning field where you are a scientist, you are collecting the data. And we're doing something similar with, um, a surf fin, it's called smart fin, um, it will go on long boards and stand up paddle boards that will also in the future test for acidification, um, oxygen levels and have a GPS. So if you're in one place where you know you've been surfing, but then it is breaking in a different place, well, is that sea level rise? More than likely if your GPS has changed. So we love citizen scientists because it, they do give us the data that we use to lobby. And if without it, we would really not have much of a leg to stand on. You really need economics and you need stats to do anything, whatever field you're in. Uh, that sounds really exciting. New innovation that's going to yeah. give you more data, which is usable. Um, big question. If you could make a regulation that was implemented around the world um, to make a big change on the ocean health and our future health as uh, humans on this planet. Um, is there any one or two things that you would say really should be done worldwide? Yes. Yes. Very great question. It's not big. It's, it's what I think about every waking minute of my life, I feel like. Um, well, you know, again, looking through Surfrider's lens and a coastal lens, we need our governments around the world to create funds for managed retreat. And what that is, is moving infrastructure out of harm's way. And California just had a, a piece of legislation. It didn't pass, unfortunately, but we're going to make it pass where um, someone's home who's at the sea is being exposed to sea level rise. Um, the state will rent it out for the homeowner and then tell it's no longer inhabitable. And then they will take the monies and try to make the, the homeowner whole and help them purchase um, a new home and remove that home. And as we saw in Florida, and we're starting to see in Hawaii, as I mentioned before, we're we're seeing infrastructure falling. And look at what happened in Pakistan. You know, moving people out of floodplains is going to be critical, even if it's not by the coast. You know, as our climate warms, the atmosphere warms and it absorbs more rain and water and precipitation. That's why we're seeing all, and it's going to continue to get warmer and we're going to have more rain. So getting moving people out of harm's way, we need to have a, a universal 
international managed retreat program that helps the disadvantaged first as a tier um, and where we make them whole. New Jersey has a great program after Hurricane Sandy. They purchased a lot of homes that were in um, lower income communities. So you have a tier system and you just, you identify places that are most vulnerable, not only from, you know, nature and, and climate change, but most vulnerable from a socioeconomic standpoint. And that will give people a sense of security because as you mentioned with seawalls, they think it's secure, but it's not. We need to get out of harm's way. So that's the first thing I would do um, is establish a funding mechanism um, and ensure that that could happen. And then obviously to just, and I know this one's very outlandish, but to stop all greenhouse gas production and switch to renewables uh, within like 10 years. Like it needs to happen fast. Um, so those would be my two favorite things. Probably not very popular <laughs> or like the most exciting, like I'm gonna give everybody lollipops, but um, yeah. But, but <laughs> I, think, I think there's more people that would listen to that and say, yeah, you know, maybe we really do need to do that. Uh, whereas even a few years ago, people would be like, that's outrageous. We can't even consider it. So I think now climate change is so much in our faces that it's impossible to deny that it is happening. And we're kind of playing catch up right now. So we know we have to move quickly, right? That's exactly it. We are playing catch up. And honestly, Joy, if we were to stop all greenhouse gas emissions, like right now, like right now, there's still going to be continual warming because as it works with the atmosphere, it just sits there, it becomes like a blanket, has the greenhouse gas effect. So yeah, we're not only behind the eight ball, it's continuing to roll really fast past us and we really need to catch up. I love that analogy. It's it's a big catch up time for us right now. Yeah, so important. Um, are there any things you're doing in your own life uh, to try to decrease your carbon impacts. Uh, I visited the zero waste town of Kamikatsu in Tokushima and I realized I needed to compost. And so I came back 100% composting in my family to the resistance of my family, but now they're used to it. Um, you know, are there any things that you've been like, oh, I have to change that in my life too? And you've done something? Yeah. So um, I actually did a major spending initiative for solar. You know, I just get so inundated with climate statistics on a regular basis and it really comes down to emissions. And so I purchased solar. I saved up all my money that I that I could. I drive a Prius. Um, I really am, I, I'm pretty much a vegan at the end of the day. I'm a vegetarian. I, I like cheese, but um, you know, I really try to curb that because again, you know, the meat and, and agricultural industry is a big contributor to, to climate change itself. The other thing that we're, we're doing right now at Surfrider, I'm so glad you asked, um, we're doing um, things that you can do by yourself at your home to curb climate change. And I hope my marketing team doesn't get mad because it's, it's not out yet and I might be giving away the goods, but uh, we're making little videos like what can you do in your kitchen? So it's buying local. I mean, the huge portion of you know, shipping food around the world and, and communities is huge with gas, uh, greenhouse gases. So kind of grow your own, even if you just have herbs on your counter, right? You're not buying that plastic. It's just, you can put a little, you know, pot there. Um, eating, having a Monday meatless day, you know, um, composting, food waste is a huge problem. So we're, we're giving individuals things that they can do in their kitchen. And then we're also giving them what they can do in their home. And one of the things is, you know, that's become, 
unfortunate is these unsustainable brands, you know, where it's like the, I, I hate to use the word fast fashion, but it's extremely climate intensive and they, the clothes and the garments are made poorly. So they're, they're wasted and they're just put into the landfill. So we have a little tutorial on how to take an old flannel and to cut them into really cool napkins um, that, that you can put on your table. So upcycling everything. And then we have, what can you do outside of your house for climate change? And that is, we call ocean-friendly gardens, where you're taking out in America, we're obsessed with our green grass. Uh, you take out that green grass and you put in native species and the soil. And again, it absorbs the carbon. So you can feel like you're doing something my previous house that I just sold, I had done that. I sunk a bunch of money into making an ocean-friendly garden because, again, I felt like it's going to pull carbon from the air, and that's something I can help. And then another thing we suggest is we have ocean-friendly restaurants, which I believe Japan participates in as well, where, again, we're looking at zero waste, right? Again, that's climate plastic goes hand in hand. Um, and we partnered with hundreds of restaurants in America where they kind of take a pledge with us. So they say we, no single-use plastic, no straws sustainably sourced fish. Um, some of them do, some of them don't do the fish thing, but um, it, it really just gives businesses a way to also feel like they're having a play in the plastic pollution um, conundrum that we have. And so it's like, you can do things in your house, outside of your house, in your kitchen, in your closet, all these little things add up. Um, and it, I, I'm really excited to see how these videos come out because I think it's pretty applicable to most of us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like you, you have talked about doing so well is standing side by side with people and seeing in an empathetic way where, where we are, where are you? I want to, I want to help you. I'm not going to wag my finger at you. I'm going to say, okay, where are you? Mm, you could do this and that would be a little bit better. Like people just feel lost and overwhelmed. So I think what you said about doing short videos, that's a great way to inspire people to just try step-by-step -step little little changes. Oh, that's not too hard. Okay, maybe I can continue that, right? Right, yeah, exactly. And you know, for the napkins, like if you don't have a sewing machine, which I, I love being a seamstress, this is something my mom was like amazing at and I learned. So I'm lucky enough to have one. But if you don't, you can go and do hand stitches. Just Google really cool hand stitches that are out there and you just need a thread and a needle. So we're trying to distill it down to every single one with whatever kind of resources they might have. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. That is our hour. What a wonderful conversation. So many great insights from your work in America, but it's like we said, very connected to Japan, very connected to all of us around the world, no matter where you are. Uh, if people want more information, can you tell us where they can find you? Yes, go to surfrider.org and then you can click on our affiliates and you can go, it will take you to Japan and Senegal and Europe. Um, so you can see all the different places we're working around the world. And the best thing is just to join a local chapter. I mean, that's the great thing about Surfrider, um, which people do ha have the assumption like, you know, we're, we're great partiers and throw great parties. We do. Um, and our chapters do fun stuff. They'll go out to a beach cleanup and then they'll go get beers or they'll go shoot pool or, you know, it's a very communal feeling so it is that feeling of we're all in this together and so it's fun and it's meaningful and i think surfrider is really unique again not to to pat ourselves too much on the back for that but that's we pride ourselves on doing that we pride ourselves on being inclusive and making some work fun that could be sad and kicking some butt why we do it
Awesome. On that note, uh, check out Surfrider in your area. And if you are doing uh, cleanups and other activities and you do care about uh, policies in your area, there's a lot of great information on your social media as well as your website. Uh, everything can be linked from surfrider.org, right? Correct. Correct. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie, and have a great day. This was so wonderful. It was so lovely to talk to you. Let's stay in touch because I, I want your glasses and I, I just think you're amazing and your show is fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, we'll have you on again and get an update uh, in right. about six months time because things are changing. So How about hopefully. we come out there because I've never been to Japan. Yes, yes. Please okay. come. That I will. Be wonderful. <laughs> All right. Thanks everyone for watching. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. My tears to you, I'm stronger. I dropped the armor, now I'm bold.